This Dharma talk was given on a silent meditation retreat at Gaia House in Devon, UK. You can find us on the web at www.gaiahouse.co.uk. These teachings are offered freely for the benefit of all. If you would like to support Gaia House by making a donation towards the administrative costs of making these talks available, please go to the Gaia House website. To donate to Dharma Seed for hosting these talks online or to donate to an individual teacher, please go to the Dharma Seed website. Your generosity supports the teachers and organizations to continue to make these Dharma offerings freely available. Thank you. So this evening, I would like to look at a few different things. The first thing I'd like to look at is actually continue a little bit with the tonality and also look at what does it mean for us in daily life. And I want to look at it through the prism, actually, of ethics. Because, in a way, when we cultivate the path, we are trying to cultivate three things. Ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so, in a way, we could say meditation possibly is more internal. Though the idea is that kind of it's internal, but then it helps us to be more connected to external. Wisdom we develop over time, through insight, through letting go. And ethics is very much about our relationship to the world, our relationship to others. And then, personally, I would suggest that actually the tonality is totally connected to ethics. And for example, um, at the beginning, very likely the coordinator mentioned the five precepts that we're trying to cultivate while we are here, of not harming, not stealing, in terms of being here, no sexual activity, though in terms of daily life is not harmful sexual activity, no lying, not taking intoxicants. And then, in a way, most of the time, I would say most of us are quite ethical. And most of the time, it's not too hard or not hard at all to follow the precept. 
But then you could have the question, when is it that I am little or greatly unethical? When is it that I go off at a tangent? And I would say actually the precept are there to help us to our reaction to tonality. So that's the way I would like to look, for example, at those five precepts. So the first one is not killing, but I presume you don't go around killing people, etc. So we'll maybe look more at non-harming. I presume generally we don't want to harm. We don't intend to harm. But when we swat something, or when we say something cutting, or thing of that nature, what is happening? Generally, we do so because of an unpleasant feeling tone. Like if somebody says something to us unpleasant, paf, we want to reply in kind, or we plot to reply apply in kind later. So it's interesting, like when we experience an unpleasant feeling tone, what do we do with it? Especially in terms of people, generally in terms of situation. Do we have this nearly instinctual, instinctual reaction to repay in kind? To and then if they don't suffer, you feel, hmm, that's unfair. It's interesting. You know, I suffer. They should suffer too. I'm not saying that they should not suffer, but it's interesting. Our reaction to the unpleasant feeling tone. And whenever, often when we harm others, or when we harm ourselves, it's the same. Generally, is that quick reaction to unpleasant. And so in a way, what we do with the meditation is, how can I creatively engage with unpleasant feeling tone? So there is not the, such a quick, in a way, reaction. But how can I consider it in a different way? I remember, I mean, this is very light, but I remember many years ago, I uh, used to be a nun in Korea, and then there was this one fellow, a uh, German monk, who used to come regularly to have tea, you know, and within 10 minutes would have this terrible argument, you know, and he would say something nasty, and I would say something nasty in return, and one or twice, I said, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this, you know, why kind of... And then uh, he came again another time, and then he said, that. And I could see he really wanted to kind of, you know, get me, so we could have a good argument. And then I said, hmm, yeah, who knows, hmm, maybe. Yes, you could look at it that way, or this other way, hmm. <laughs> And I did not react at all to the dig. 
And then he stopped coming. It was not fun anymore. <laughs> so in a way, it's kind of like not saying it did not happen. But how can I creatively engage so that I might not react in the exact same kind? Then you have the sec next one is do not steal. I mean, this one. Why would we steal? You know, I mean, you know, generally pleasant feeling tone. I like this. I want this. I have to have this. Etc. Etc. It's very interesting. Kind of like what we want, and then what we're going to do to get it. That's, that's very interesting. And I think with that one. Kind of like, you know, in the precept, you say, do not take what is not given. I mean, most of the time, I presume you don't steal, but, you know, often we kind of, we don't uh, give back books. That's interesting, books, or it's interesting what we don't give back, or what we keep, or what we forget. <laughs> and kind of like this, I want this. I want this for myself. And in a way, Either because we have a pleasant feeling tone when in contact with the object, or because we think if we get the object, I will feel so much better. There is also that one. Because it's kind of like, as the Buddha says, kind of the future pleasant feeling tone. This is, is going to get it to me. If I get this, yes, I will feel so much better. And so in a way here, it's kind of really looking at what is it I need? What is it I want? And I would say in terms of kind of the ecology and the kind of the what's going on at the, at the moment, I find that so interesting. Because at one level we could say we're not doing anything different than anybody else. You know, everybody is doing it, so why not me? In terms of using electricity or using whatever, all the stuff we use. And I have my sweet little niece. She's doing a thing on Instagram, in French, on no waste. So she, all this kind of little thing that you can do, no waste. And then at the end of the month, she show you, she just a little tiny, tiny, kind of a few thing in a little kind of thing. And I'm very proud of her. And then I look at all my waste and I feel, whoo. <laughs> She would not approve. Auntie is really not so good. And it's kind of like, in a way, here again, it's kind of between what is comfortable and what might be just a little neutral or a little uncomfortable. Kind of it's interesting in terms of using resources. So we are not stealing, but are we using too much resources in a way for our own comfort, so that in a way we stealing from the earth. Because at one level, at some point, some of the resources will be gone. So kind of looking a little like this, what's my level of comfort? I think that's an interesting one. What's my level of comfort? Can I kind of bring that a little down? Then there is a precept about not harming through sexual activity. And again, 
It could be that there is an unpleasant feeling tone and you think, wow, if I have sex with this person, I feel so much better, at least for that moment. I will have very pleasant feeling tone. Or it's so pleasant, you know, let's have more and more and more of it. But in a way, I mean, unless you kind of do it by yourself, which then, you know, you do what you want. <laughs> but if it involves someone else, it becomes a little tricky. Is it just for my own pleasure? Can I respect the autonomy? Can I respect the other person? Can I listen to the other person? And so in a way, seeing how sometimes, if the feeling tone is really high, that it be unpleasant or pleasant, it's kind of like it drives us. And then, we might forget about the other person. What is the effect on them? That's so kind of, in a way, to look at this drive. How does it make me feel? How do I act upon it? Can I creatively engage with it? And then you have the fourth one, which is do not lie. That was, I mean, in the silence, it's great. No opportunity. But it's interesting. Why do we lie? I mean, we lie for both reasons again. Either we lie because we did something, and uh, there is unpleasant consequences, and if somebody knows about it, it's going to be even more unpleasant. So then we lie. Or we lie for the fun of it, because, you know, it makes a better story. Or because we want to be seen in a certain way. Long ago, when I was in uh, Korea, there was this young man who came, and the whole day he just told me, like, kind of, you know, his fabulous life and his spiritual quest and how amazing it was. Personally, it was neither here nor there for me, you know. But at the end of the day, I realized everything he said was lies. And I was like, why would you do this? You know, why would you need to do this, to lie in this way? And in a way, if we've done something which might be a little dodgy or harmful, or if we make a mistake. It's like when we are a child, you know, you break a vase, you know, and the parents say, you know, you broke the vase. I did not broke the vase, you know, the thing is there, but no, 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 I did not do it. It's interesting, it's kind of like, it's too painful. You know, I did a mistake and, you know, I can't, it did not happen. It's interesting when we do something and we think, oh, if only it did not ha happen, oh, it did not happen. Oh. It's interesting how we can, it happen where we nearly don't accept it happens because of that tonality. And so in a way, can we creatively engage with making a mistake? Kind of, hmm, I made a mistake, how can I work with that without lying about it. And the fourth one, fifth one, is taking intoxicant. 
And again, you might take drug, alcohol, because you have such an unpleasant feeling tone that actually only this can make you feel a little better. Or it might give you anyway such a good feeling tone, I want more of it. And then the, the question here is, I can really understand. Like there was, I was reading this article about this young woman who became an alcoholic very early on. And she said when she was 15, she had her first glass of strong alcohol. And it helped her to feel so much better because she was so shy, so anxious and everything. She had that first glass of really strong alcohol. It was like, wow, I am fun, I am easy, I can relate to everybody, this is great. And she said she fell in love with alcohol. Actually, she fell in love with the pleasant feeling tone it gave her about herself. Then after that, she kind of, I mean, she was drinking so much, she would just pass out. Three days, gone. And she said it was very hard for her to finally let it go because of all this passing out and things like that because she has such a pleasant tonality connected to the drinks. It was very hard for her to let go of the tonality, how it made her feel. Or the, another example of this young man, there is this um, association, charity, in England who kind of uh, bring yoga and meditation into prison. And so sometimes they have uh, letters from people who were in prison, who benefited from their program, or who got out of prison, benefited from their program. And there was this lovely letter from this guy who said, oh, I love taking drugs. I have so much fun, you know, and dealing drugs, so much fun, exciting and everything. But then, because it's illegal, he ended up in jail, which was less fun. And then, so he did his time, and he did the meditation and everything like that. And he realized he was doing drugs and everything because it was fun. It really made him feel this really intense, pleasant experience. But at the same time, jail was not fun. So he thought, can I find the same excitement, but legal? So then he took up surfing, and then he stopped drunk, because it gave him a very similar pleasant experience, but it was a little less problematic. So now it's kind of like, how do we use this thing? And especially if they're harmful to ourselves, to others, when we are under the influence. And so in a way, it's kind of like, how can I creatively engage? I think it's really, can, can I creatively engage with this difficult feeling too? And in a way, how can I replace? Often, I feel is that before we stop uh, drug, alcohol, or whatever it might be, we have to think first. I mean, of course, we can stop cold. I have friends who have stopped cold. But sometimes I feel first we have to find the replacement. The replacement which will help with the unpleasant feeling tool. Or the replacement which will give that pleasant feeling tool. Because I think there is a kind of a certain 
sometimes survival mechanism involved in that. Then I wanted to talk a little bit about a theme we have mentioned a little already, which is a term, equanimity. And so you could say equanimity could be also called serenity. Uh, and often people kind of have talked a little bit in interview or in groups. Often I think there is this idea that if I practice enough, or if I practice in the right way, then at some point, either I will be calm all the time, either I will not have so much thought anyway, either nobody, nothing will bother me. And often I have this little image that we hope that at some point we'll get on a little cloud. So a little cloud, nice, little comfortable, fluffy cloud above everything. No? And I'm on my little cloud, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I am serene. I am equanimous. Ah, you have difficulty down there, too bad, too bad, who knows, who knows. <laughs> One day you might join me in my little cloud. <laughs> but me, I'm okay. But I don't think that's what we want to do. It doesn't seem to me that's what this is about. To me, equanimity is about two different things, actually. One thing is that it's about certain quality that we develop over time within ourselves. And I would say the quality of stability and the quality of balance. But the quality of stability doesn't mean that I am stable all the time. But I can be stable time to time and I can come back to stability. So in a way, it is more about equilibrium. The fact that I can be stable and balanced but doesn't mean I'm going to stable and balanced all the time. But I can be stable, then I will be destabilized. But then I can come back to stability. Or I can be balanced, and then I will lose the balance because of condition, and then I can come back to balance. So I think to be careful of not thinking I'm going to get, in a way, this permanent state. We can't because things are impermanent, things are conditioned. But that what we want to cultivate is kind of nearly like a ground of stability we can come back to. We can build a certain balance, a certain equilibrium we can come back to. And often we can find those in a way with our, within our organism. I think in a way, we do all this sitting, all this walking. But it's not just in a way to do the anchoring and the questioning, but I think it's kind of to organically within ourselves, just a sitting there, organically within ourselves, building 
just being still here. And then we can take this in movement. The same when you do the walking meditation, you're not going anywhere. So you walk back and forth, so you walk at an ordinary pace. But that is a different type of walking. Notice how you walk when you don't walk meditatively. You kind of look here and there, and then you jump here, and you jump there, and I must get there as fast as I can. It's a very different quality than if you really bring this walking. I can feel it within myself when I'm kind of walking in this kind of uh, mindless way, then it's like a little kind of, uh, I lose it in a way. I remember, I mean, this was really kind of weird. I could not go to town because of many different reasons. I live in the countryside. And so finally, the day I can go to town, I have all these things to do. And the first thing I'm going to do is get this piece of material from Apple Store. And so I rush into the Apple Store. And you know how it is in Apple Store. Things are never going to go fast. You can't, you can't. So I go up there, and where is the thing? And how can I buy it? And you do the order. I don't have the time, so I go out. And then I'm going out of the Apple store, looking to another store, which will be faster. And then suddenly I thought, if they knew I am a meditation teacher, <laughs> they would not believe it. <laughs> they would say, never. Not this agitated, old, cranky lady. <laughs> and immediately, I just went back to stability and equilibrium. You know, I was kind of like, and then, what's the point? But it's interesting how we can really be taken. I have to do this, I have to do this fast. But then, if you have practice, you can notice it. Hey, what I'm doing here? No equilibrium. And then, actually, we can easily I would say some of the time, most of the time, come back to some equilibrium, come back to some stability, and then we can go in a different way. So really seeing this equanimity, <coughs> this um, serenity we talk about, not as a permanent state, but a kind of like a little bit like a creative process, like a cultivation of certain quality, which we are resourced by and which we can go back to again and again if we seem to lose it. But another aspect of equanimity is actually the term equal. And that actually, if you look at the text, equanimity also means that we treat things and people equally. And that's an interesting thing to consider. Because, of course, generally we want to treat people equally. We are an equal society and we want to treat. But do we treat people equally? Or are we looking out for number one? And mm, this one, you know, if I'm close to this one, that will be good for me. That one, pff, cannot do much for me, so forget it. This one, I'm not sure about keeping on the back burner. We'll see. <laughs> you know? 
I'm, I remember long ago, I was, uh, I mean, not that I'm very well known, but I was really not known at all. And my husband was not known very much. Uh, well, now he's much more known. And what was funny for me was to go to this kind of big meeting with lots of people or conference with the Dalai Lama and things like that. And we really were nobodies. And everybody treated us as nobodies. You know. Those, not interesting, you know. And I was so, f okay, I mean, we're nobodies, fair enough, you know. And then, suddenly, I don't know why, over a few years, our status changed. And so suddenly, we were not nobodies. It was like, ha, ah! And I was like, hmm? <laughs> What happened? What changed? You know? Why am I special now? And I was not special before. I mean, I am not that very different. But that all experience always stayed with me. So personally, that's really a practice for me, to really try to treat people really equally. Really, and to be very careful that, ooh, I mean, of course, at one level, we won't treat people equally because, you know, we like those one little more, this one a little less, and different reasons. So, of course, we want 100% all the time. But personally, I think this is very important as part of equanimity that we treat people equally. But also, we treat ourselves equally. I think it goes part, because if you don't treat yourself equally, you're not going to treat others. Like if you think, I'm not worth it, then, you know, who is worth it? Kind of. And so, in a way, I think to me this is a very important part of this not-self, like we talk about not-self. And to me, the not-self is really about can I treat myself and others equally? And can I treat others for themselves? Because I think a lot of the time, we see others through our prism, through our glasses. I'm like this, they should be like that. Or whatever it might be. Or, hmm, yeah, I hope they give me this, or they give me that. Or we meet people, and this is something we have to, I think, to, to be a little careful. Of course, people have certain tendency, we have certain tendency, and we can recognize that. But can we be careful not to preset ourselves? I'm always like this, I will always be like that. One might have a tendency to be a certain way, but does that mean you cannot change? the way you are in some ways. The same with others. You know, I had that experience with them like 10 years ago, and they were still exactly the same. I mean, they could be exactly the same, but I think that would be hard to keep up, you know? And often, like, somebody says something to us 10 years ago, and we think it's so definite, and they totally meant it, and I mean, they might just have it said it out of whatever was on their mind at the time, and they totally changed their mind, you know? And to me, that's what I really love, is when, you know, you are in a meeting and you think, oh, this one is going to say that, that one is going to say that, all oh, that subject, oh, 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 this is all. 
And recently I had such a meeting and I thought, oh. And actually we had such a graceful meeting. Kind of we look at, oh, somebody pointed this out. How can we deal with it? And then actually of all the people together, we thought, hmm, yeah, we don't need to do this. We don't really need to do that. Maybe we could do that. But it was so graceful. Like nobody was kind of, you know, this is my position and he must stay that way, but it's more okay. How can we together come to a certain appropriate skillful understanding and action within this situation? And to me, I thought that was so lovely because nobody can, in a way, was set in a pattern, but actually creatively engaged with what was going on in the moment. So in a way, to see this not-self as an exploration of the condition that forms us. So really, kind of it's a way to look at ourselves, to look at others in a multi-perspectival way. And I think often what we do is that we just see either ourselves or other, kind of like we see them through a prism. So you might see them the prism of gender, or the prism of culture, or the prism of ethnicity, or the prism of class, or the prism of this, the prism of that. And when we do this, we reduce the person. And this is so painful. I mean, recently I was seeing this, um, they have this uh, program on this internet channel in France when a kind of somebody who was an illegal migrant over time become a legal one. And they were kind of, so they were saying, you know, the first day, what did you do? How was it? And how did you become from this kind of dangerous, difficult, painful situation? How did you got to a better place in terms of the society, acceptance, etc.? And so there was this young man who kind of, you know, described, you know, I arrived there and I was sleeping, you know, outside. And, you know, I was like, why did I come from Africa to here? And it's not fun. So it was really a shock for him to kind of, you know, have all this hope and you end up in this town and you don't know anybody. And, and so finally, of course, because people saw not just this young illegal immigrant, but they wanted to help him out, and so things kind of turn out really good for him. He's going to school, he's become legal, etc. He's written a book about his experience with somebody who helped him. And then at the end of the program, about this first day, they said, what is it you ask to the people who are going to watch this? And he said, to see that I am human. I am just a human, like yourself. I am not a category. I am a human like yourself, with possibility, with capacity, with emotion, feelings, a history. Can you see me as a human, not as a category? And so to me, this is really in terms of people seeing people equally, is really seeing their humanity, or seeing that they are complex, and that a lot of the time we reduce. And so what I wanted to share with you 
was actually something which really touched me in terms about actually identity. I thought this was kind of like, and how the way we are with people can determine how they feel, how they identify. And so on Twitter, I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but the most interesting is Twitter. And on Twitter, I follow these kind of different people, scientists, different things. And one of the people I follow are this lady called Imani Barbaran. I'm not possibly pronouncing her name properly. And she is an activist. She is a disabled activist. And she is an African-American. And she's really kind of like, really on the barricade. And she's wonderful. And she writes uh, in her uh, blog. And what she wrote, when, she, when I read that, I was like, wow. This is about identity, and this is what we have to be so careful about others. So that's what she says. I have spent so much time in my childhood mourning something I never was able to. So, ma so many people compared me to a version of myself that never existed that it felt like I had lost her, or that I was letting everyone down for not being her. I was born with my disability. Cerebral palsy has been in my medical chart since I was two years old. The dream that I will never walk perfectly never started with me. It was a combination of well-meaning family member and complete stranger telling me that their own able bodies were the standard of ability and that if I did not want that for myself, I was giving up. So imagine a young child with cerebral palsy, which means she cannot really walk properly, one could say, and everybody telling her, implicitly, you must be other than you are. You must be this able child. You must be that and her, but I am not that. And so it's kind of like she grown up with this kind of ghost of what she should be or what she was expected to be. But she could feel she would never be because that's not what the conditions. And then she says, everything good in my life, everything I have worked for, came through not denying the word disabled, but embracing it. It doesn't make it any easier, but it has set me free. I am free. My greatest burden associated with my disability is not the diagnosis, but the shame others imposed on me because of it. This is interesting. Because you are not fulfilling the expectation of what a child should be, a bold, and da 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 da, then it's kind of like, why aren't you? It's like kind of you have this kind of, again, this other person. You kind of compared. And then you feel guilty for not being that. 
but she could cope. I mean, she could cope with her condition. Kind of, she had no trouble coping. She, I mean, uh, people kept saying to her, you know, only if you walk properly, and if you kind of do this and do that, then. But if you do what you want, you know, and not kind of work upright. But she got, you know, education. She works, etc. But by embracing her disability, so I think in a way. When we talk of treating people equally, we're really kind of saying, can you treat them and see their multi-perspectival aspect and not reduce them to just one? Because we do that to ourselves too. We reduce ourselves to a hope, we reduce ourselves to a dream, we reduce ourselves to a sensation. And if we talk, of tonality, what is interesting about tonality in terms of ourselves? How do we feel about ourselves? Time to time, we don't like ourselves. Hopefully, it is not all the time, because that's tough. But what does it mean if we don't like ourselves? It means we are stuck with this person who gives you unpleasant feeling tone. That's not fun. But if you love yourself, if you really love yourself, if you really embrace all aspects of yourself and creatively engage with it, then upon that contact, you can have a pleasant feeling tone all the time. And then if people on top of it love you, it's kind of a bonus. You know, you don't have to have so many of them. I mean, you can have some of them. And then, in terms of loving others, like often there is this idea, oh, if I practice meditation a lot, I must not love, because then I would be attached. Ooh, attached. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Personally, I think loving is a great idea. Great idea. You know, but then what is interesting when we look in terms of relationship, loving children, animal, partners, whoever, whatever we love, why do we love them? Because they give us a pleasant feeling tone, which is a very good idea. But then the question is, if we love someone, an animal, a child or whatever, and they give us this pleasant feeling tone, then do we have to stick to them to have this pleasant feeling tone all the time? Because that's what we might do. Or do we need to have the pleasant feeling tone all the time to the same degree? Can we? So that's what it becomes interesting. What is loving? Is loving having this warm feeling all the time? Or is loving caring for the person, the animal, the child most of the time? Caring for them, appreciating them, growing with them. Sometimes, I mean, personally, I don't have children, but sometimes I see kind of, you know, a child and a mother or a father. And the child, I want this. And the 
was our father or whoever says, no, it's not good for you. I want this. And the father, no, no, no. And the child said, I hate you. And then kind of the parents are, ooh. No? No. And it's interesting. Because does it mean that the child at that moment kind of doesn't love the parents anymore? I mean, obviously, the child has an unpleasant feeling too because they're not getting the ice cream or whatever they want. But it's interesting, like, ah, they don't love me no more. Like, the tonality is not there anymore. But then something happens and they love you again. You know, it's like not the end of the world. But it's interesting that. Kind of, what is love? Is it just to have the same pleasant feeling tone all the time? Or is it that kind of that love can have many different aspects? And sometimes it will have this pleasant feeling tone, sometimes it will have maybe more a neutral feeling tone. That's interesting to look at. And then it's interesting to look at what is it I grasp? Do I grasp at the person? Do I grasp at the feeling? Or do we, what I call, develop creative wise love? And then we appreciate the person, the animal, the child to be in our life. And at the same time, we don't just love them for ourselves, but we love them for themselves. Because sometimes we can have what I call conditional love. I love you if you kind of have all this requirement. Of course, within the fact that they're not harming, etc. But you know, if there's no requirement, then I don't love you. It's interesting. Kind of, how can we creatively, wisely love each other? How can we see the whole person for themselves? How can we grow in love together? And personally, I think this is also part of the practice, especially in daily life. How can we sustain ourselves through love? How we can sustain other through this creative, wise love? So, that's what I wanted to say today. Then there was a, just a little question. So this was in regard to where science and meditation meet. I was wondering if any research has been done on the collective experience of people on retreat. And I must say, I have no idea. I have no idea because at the moment, there are lots of different studies done on mindfulness, compassion. I know there have some studies have been done on people on long-term retreat in America, but I don't know if anybody has done anything on a collective, like kind of how is it collectively with people on retreat. One would have, I think, just to Google it and see if anything happens. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Huh? What? Quite like 
point, good point. Okay, uh, why not? You see, I mean, basically, you have to look at the, uh, do you drink beer and then become comatose, or do you drink beer and become aggressive, etc., uh, etc. Et so I think uh, within the, the precept, is not saying, you know, don't drink any alcohol or don't take any drugs or whatever, but don't take substance which will kind of um, confuse, which will make you harmful. Uh, so that's what he's talked about. So like for you, possibly, you can have a few beer and it's fine. I read a book on uh, addiction and uh, the, the scientist who was writing the book was saying he made this family and there was kind of a, the father and two sons in the family. And unfortunately, they were of a type in the family that if they had one glass of alcohol, then this was it. Then they would go on a bend and then they would become comatose and it would not be good for them or anybody else. So within that family, in which they could not drink because one would just lead to loss. When other people who did not have the, I think, the same genetic material could, or whatever condition was making it so, they could have one or two glasses of wine or beer, and it did not kind of, you know, make them kind of vague or confused or harmful to themselves or others. So that's generally what the idea is about in terms of that one. Yeah? When were these rules devised? I was just thinking about how they changed So, these are, in a way, you could say the basic one. What is interesting is how from those basic principles, uh, then you had a very different uh, type of ethics which were developed in different Buddhist traditions. One set which I'm really kind of, I love very much is what's called the Bodhisattva precept. And it was developed in China in the 4th, 5th century. And they, I mean, this precept, they kind of, you have 48 of them, 10 minor, 38. Uh, 10 major, 38 minor, and it's a wonderful, very interesting text because one third is really relevant, very interesting, you know? Like, you know, don't kick a cart, don't, don't kick an inanimate object in anger, kind of 5th fifth, fifth century AD in China, who has not kicked his computer or <laughs> the car or, you know, so at that level, people are not very different, you know? Uh, and then you have one third which is really kind of about kind of cultural thing of that time. And then one third is about being in competition with some other groups. So, but some of them are really so lovely, kind of, you know, uh, rescue people in difficulty, uh, kind of uh, help people who are suffering, like if they were the Buddha himself and many different, there is kind of some lovely thing in there. And then, you have recently one of the very interesting uh, ethical texts is what I would you find in the, with Thich Nhat Hanh, with the Plum Village. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese uh, teacher and he developed a community in France, in America, in Vietnam, in Thailand also, and different country. And so he started to have like kind of the mindfulness precept. If I'm not 
recently somebody was reciting them and I forgot them already, but possibly, I don't know, 14 to 16, something like that. And what is interesting with that group is that they're changing them a little bit all the time. So you are kind of like, it's very interesting. They kind of look at the uh, dynamic of it, they look at the ecology of it, they and so time to time, you'll have kind of a revision of the precept, which are already very adapted for the modern world, for the modern condition. So I think, personally, I think it's kind of something very interesting to think in terms of ethics, kind of like, what is the ethics for our time? Like, I presume for my uh, young niece, you know, no waste would be like one of the ethical principles, one of the precepts would be. And that's what she's taken on at the moment. Exactly. I mean, in the uh, Tik precept, they also look at that, kind of the usage of the internet and many different things like that. They're, they're more modern. They're very adapted. Yes. Social striving, I think, in a way, you could nearly say, how do you strive? <laughs> you see, I think, you know, how do you strive? I think it's kind of looking a little bit at that. I mean, in terms of the practice, there is this notion in Son, in Zen, of effortless effort. But effortless effort doesn't mean you're not trying anything. But effortless effort is like you don't bring too much tension within it. But sometimes, if you want to achieve something, you really have to bring a lot of energy into it. But then, are we looking at striving in terms of mental effort, mental expectation, or emotional effort, emotional expectation, or physical effort, physical expectation? So I think it's kind of looking at between the effort themselves, which I could say, how are you efforting? And sometimes you have to bring more energy. Sometimes you have to bring less energy. And then sometimes there is also more that fact of expectation. I am striving, I'm striving, I want to get this, I want to get this. And you could strive so hard and you might not get it. And so is it your fault that you don't get it? Or is it the kind of the condition are not there for that? Or is it that possibly you have to go in a more kind of different way with less striving to maybe possibly achieve a lesser goal which is possible? So I find it's interesting for us to look at how do I act? How do I intend? And we're not kind of, I don't think we need to intend in the same way all the time. I think it will very much depend on the circumstance. Do I have energy or not? Am I in good health or not? How much do I need to achieve? I mean, also it's kind of, you know, can I bring other people with me? 
which then might make the thing more collective and possibly more possible. And how do I do we do this together? Because personally, I think it's also something to really look at is I'm striving for a goal, but in the striving for a goal, am I kind of, you know, stressing everybody else? There is also that. Often that's what happens sometimes in uh, places. So I think it's kind of like kind of reflecting. I would personally, I would take this kind of more that don't strive, that I don't think makes sense. But how do I put in effort? And am I going for something I would call aspiration? So I'm looking towards something. This gives me energy to go toward it, to accomplish it. Or am I more stuck in expectation? This must be like this, and I'm going to really go for it. And it might work, or it might not. And so often we kind of balance, we kind of move from expectation to aspiration. Yes. Well, I think <laughs> this is a tricky one nowadays. It is so tricky uh, because, you know, politics is, you know, very much about society, is how society come together and how society can work together. But, uh, and so partly over time through the police, P-O-L-I-S, uh, people have come together, and something has been achieved in terms of human rights, everything like that. And at the same time, uh, in terms of kind of like what we would call politics in government, politics as electioneering, politics as getting power, uh, you kind of think not much ethics seems to be going on there. And you kind of think, you know, what can we do about this? Personally, I'm really heartened when anybody tries to do a little bit of something toward that in terms of the society. So instead of kind of looking so much at how can we make politics more ethical or how can we make politicians more ethical, that's a big one, how can we as a society come together in a way which is skillful, appropriate, and again, respect each other, and not just work for the 1%, but kind of work for everyone in that society. How can we be inclusive? How can we be supportive? And we can see with the politics, whatever, I mean, impermanence in action, you know, for many years after the Second World War, there was kind of late, I mean, there was some nasty stuff too, but there was a little bit of like, you know, how can everybody be in this together? And then it looked like everybody got a little bit better. And I don't know, it looks like they became more egoist. <laughs> they got it. They're not sure they want the other to get it too, especially if it's a little kind of tiny bit. It's interesting. I have this, which is quite a lot already. And they could have this one, could have a little bit more, little bit, little bit. It's not taking anything from you, but I mean, who knows? Giving them a little bit, hmm, 
you never know it's going to take something from me. It's interesting that instead of having this sharing. So I'm always kind of inspired by people who have a more cooperation, more sharing, more inclusive, and I'm glad some people in society are do this because, yes, the current at the moment is a little dispiriting, but we should not lost hope, I would say. So, thank you. So now there is some uh, walking.